Thank you, Matthew. You can pray for JT as he uh, wraps up a week of vacation with his family, much deserved. Um, Lord willing, he'll be back with us next week. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We come to the final little paragraph in this amazing part of God's Word. We'll um, wrap it up next week with a, kind of a summary and overview of it, but um, we come to the end of it today as far as the, the text itself goes. The Taj Mahal doesn't need any introduction to any of us. I mean, it's a, it's a building that most of us, just even in our minds, can recognize this big white edifice that was built there. They tell us today that if it were built today, it would cost over a billion dollars to build that building. And it's built in memoriam of one person. A man built this building in memorial to his wife as a constant reminder of her beauty and her love. I've been inside the Prince Albert Hall in London. It's the most amazing auditorium-type room that I've ever been in. It's gorgeous. It's ornate. It's got sculptures and just amazing, amazing architecture. Queen Victoria built it for her husband, Prince Albert, after he had died uh, from typhoid when he was 42 years old. It's an amazing building. When God chose to build something to remember and reflect and point to his glory, his wisdom, his grace and mercy in Christ. When God decided to put something together and construct something to reflect that, he built, well, look around. I don't mean at this structure, at this brick and this sheetrock, this drywall. I mean, look around the room. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? I see some of you grinning, Connors, back there in the back row. I know. Yeah, I see you. Yeah, even your crazy cousin, you know, if he's in Christ. That's, that's what God did and is building. We've seen that in our study in Ephesians. Look in chapter 3. I know you'll hear it again next week as I summarize the book. But in, in chapter 3, starting in verse 9, Paul talks about the gospel that he was a, made a minister of according to God's grace. And he says in verse 9, To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. Mystery hidden for ages. In God who created all things so that through the church, look at this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the, the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, to bring everything together in Christ. The church is the visible manifestation of God's amazing grace and wisdom. That's what God is building so as I look at this word and as I look around this room, what do I see? What do we see when we look around this room with, with eyes of faith? With eyes of faith, what do we see? Some of you I've known 32 years. Some of you I've known less than 30 days. 
And you could say the same about others in this room. But as we look around this room, what do we see with eyes of faith? For most of you, I see someone like myself who at one time was dead in my trespasses and sins. Who by God's grace has been made alive together with Christ. And has been joined together with other formerly dead sinners. And brought together in a supernatural organism. Not an organization. Not a civic group. But an organism. The living, breathing, supernatural empowered body of Christ. That's, that's what I see when I look around this room. People who are different in so many ways, who were formerly, according to Ephesians, alienated, separated, both from God and one another, and brought together in what Paul describes in Ephesians as a new third race, a new humanity. Not Jew, not Gentile, but adopted into God's family as brothers and sisters in Christ. One new man. So that's what I see when I look around. So we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, he says in Ephesians 2. That's who, that's who we are. So with that in mind, with, with that understanding in mind, we look around the room and we don't see theological examples. We see supernatural miracles, okay? Miracles of what God has done for us in Christ. So as we come to the end of, of Ephesians this week, to the end of the, the text proper, this, this amazing journey that we've been on over the last, well, what, since January, brings us now, we come in for this crazy landing. Just imagine landing an F-18 fighter jet. And we're coming out of this air-to-air combat, this this spiritual warfare against these forces in the heavenly realms. And we bring it in for a landing into the confines of this room, into the confines of this church, this fellowship, and our relationship with each other. And we bring it back into this place where God is manifesting his glory and working his grace. And throughout the epistle, throughout all of this letter, we've seen over and over phrases like peace and love and grace. And that peace and that love and that grace and that faith come together even in this last paragraph. Now, look back at the beginning of the book, because it began in chapter 1, With blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so he begins this whole epistle with this picture that falls under the umbrella of grace. To the praise of his glorious grace is how the book begins. And that's how the epistle ends as we come to this last section. So follow along with me as I just read these last few verses. And I'm actually going to pick it up at the end of the previous passage where Paul is describing how we're to pray as Dempster led us through last week. All right. So 
He says in verse 18 that we're to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then in verse 19, Paul says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. To Caicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and, our, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray right quick. Lord, we do ask your blessing over your word today as we open it up. And I pray that as your Holy Spirit is the one who teaches it and plants it deeply in our hearts. Lord, we might be prone just to skip over or read through quickly the the ending verses here in, in Ephesians. But I pray, Lord, that you'll... Help us mine into it, God, and bring out the, the gold that's there. What is, is so important, so relevant to our lives, Lord. And we humbly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this last little section here, there's three things in your outline, three things in your sermon notes that I want you to see um, that, that I think are just profound. A, a couple of commentators that it's interesting if you look at commentaries on the book of Ephesians, there are many who basically skip this. I mean, I have several on my desk right now who go through the end of the passage on spiritual warfare and pretty much the end. That's it. They mention this last benediction sometimes, but there's really not much there. In fact, one said there's not a whole lot of theological truth that needs to be dug out of this. And I just disagree. I just disagree with, with that. I mean, every word is inspired and every word I believe is important for us to take a look at. But as we do, going back up to where Paul says this and pray for me. And I just really was caught by the beauty of that humility, the beauty of that humility. I know of no one other than Jesus in the New Testament who would be the model of what a strong, powerful, spirit-filled Christian would look like than the Apostle Paul. And yet here he says, pray for me. Pray for me. Paul is a leader in the church, as Dempster pointed out last week. He's a shepherd. He's a missionary. In some way, he has a pastor's heart. And I believe he remembered what Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 26, that the enemy's strategy is to strike the shepherd so that the sheep will flee. I believe Paul remembered that and recognizes that. And he knows that an elder or pastor's role in the church is to shepherd the sheep. And as he says earlier in the book of Ephesians, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if, if our enemy Satan wants to disrupt the work of the church and the building up of the saints, then he's going to strike those who have the primary responsibility to do that. And so Paul in humility says, pray for me. He's wise enough to know this. And listen, even the apostle Paul knows I cannot stand against Satan on my own. I cannot. So pray for me and with me. 
I need you praying for me and with me. He's wise enough to see that he cannot stand against the enemy on his own, and he is humble enough to simply ask for prayer. And I, I love that. But his posture is not defensive. He's not crawling in a foxhole, covering his head up and just hoping it goes well. Notice what he says. He's also a preacher and an evangelist, and he asks for prayer. And what does he ask for that prayer for? So that he will be bold and clear when the opportunity comes. So that when God sees fit to bring a divine appointment, and the opportunity comes to speak a word of the gospel, a word for Christ, a word of personal testimony, that when that opportunity comes, Paul says, pray for me, That I will proclaim that word the way I should. That I should do it boldly and I should do it clearly, he says. That I would proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And that I would do it boldly, he says there in verse 20. So his posture is not defensive. Help me know what to say and when to say it and how to say it clearly. And that's his prayer. So he is not... He's not backing off in any sense. And so how does God answer that prayer? How does God answer that prayer in Paul's life? Well, I think we see the letter in a, in a letter, the answer in a letter that he wrote shortly here after he wrote Ephesians in, in Philippians chapter 1. I'll read it to you. Philippians 1.12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And he's talking about being imprisoned in Rome. It's really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul said, pray for me, church, that I'll be bold and clear in the gospel. And God answered that prayer. And his boldness and his clarity not only impacted the very prison and the facility in which he was imprisoned, but the brothers in Christ who saw him being bold and clear were encouraged and empowered to do the same. What a beautiful picture that is. And here's how I want us to think about applying this, okay? Just as we move into this next section. Back in 2019, I remember we took a lot of time and we spent time talking about an emphasis within our state convention that J.D. Greer had initiated called Hoosier One. At the time, he was president of the whole Southern Baptist Convention, and he initiated it throughout our convention. Hoosier One, who is the one person that God would lay on your heart that you can pray for, build a relationship with, With the ultimate end that you would have the opportunity to share the gospel with that one person. We're not asking you to reach all of Roxborough. We're not asking you to reach all of North Carolina or go to Ukraine or any. Who's one person you can pray for, relate to, and share the gospel with. And I think it would be good for us to revisit that and to re-engage in that. COVID and everything else kind of through a lot of that stuff kind of off the tracks. But can I suggest we revisit and re-enter that quest? So as it relates to this passage, Paul praying for boldness and clarity. Would we, could we pray that for each other? And could we, would we within our life groups and our Sunday school classes and our small groups be specific with one another and asking for that kind of encouragement and that kind of support in prayer? Pray for me as I reach 
my neighbor. Pray for me as I seek to engage them in a gospel conversation. Humility to recognize we must have one another beside us. We can't survive alone. The humility to recognize that and the wisdom to see that. And then the boldness to say, I do want to share my faith. I do want to share the gospel. So would you pray for me in that regard? We see that. Now move ahead. And think about the blessings of community that encourage our heart. And and I see that here as I've meditated on this passage now for a couple of weeks. Here's, here's kind of where my brain goes, and it goes weird, I know, sometimes, so just bear with me for a minute. The God of the Bible is a personal, relational God. That makes Christianity different from every other world religion, where we worship, where, where some being or some, some nebulous concept is worshipped. Our God is relational, even in his very nature within the Trinity. He is relational and a personal being. And the goal of God's redemptive plan that we have seen as we studied Ephesians, as we saw in the book of Revelation, is that one day he will recreate this broken, sin-infested world with new heaven and a new earth. And it will be better than Eden. And as as Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, so restored, redeemed humanity, this new third race that Ephesians talks about, will see him face to face. And there will be perfect fellowship with him. That's where God is headed as he centers all things in Christ. And so our creator is recreating things as he intended them to be. And this personal face-to-face fellowship with God is to be now lived out within the body of Christ. It's indispensable. It cannot be substituted. There is no substitute for the body of Christ meeting shoulder-to-shoulder, face-to-face sharing our lives with one another, because that's the nature of our God. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So as I've been thinking about this week, this is not the book of Ephesians is not some cold theological truth that came from some academic in an ivory tower. It came From an apostle, it came from someone personally called by Christ. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it comes from Paul, who is a theologian, yes, a missionary, yes, an evangelist, yes, but he is a dear brother in Christ in those churches, and he loves the church, and he loves those who are in the church. He loves them. And he says, I have a desire that you would know how I am. That you would know how I'm doing and what I'm doing. And since Paul is unable to come face to face to be with the church there in Ephesus and Colossae, he sends someone in his place. Someone with flesh and blood. And there's so much in that, I think, that's significant for us. There's so much. Paul desires that those believers there, and I think us as well, would would have, first off, a knowledge of each other's lives. 
Paul wanted that for himself and for those believers there. I want you to know how I am and what I'm doing. He says it twice here. But I also want you to be encouraged in your hearts. That word encouraged there is in the Greek word is parakaleo. It's the word that's used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. It means to come along beside someone. So Paul didn't hire some unknown courier sometimes. He didn't call FedEx or somebody like that to come and deliver this letter. He points out this brother, Tychicus, who's mentioned only five times in the New Testament. And in none of those we have any detail about this man other than what Paul says here. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that he was an Asian. So we can surmise that he probably came from the, from the Ephesus area. It's not unrealistic to think that he probably came to faith through the preaching and teaching, the work of Paul. And he there then came under Paul's wing, if you will, and he traveled with Paul. He was part of that group that traveled with Paul from Ephesus to Jerusalem to take that offering to the Jerusalem church. He went with Paul then to Rome. I'll talk about that more in just a minute. But the idea here is that there would be knowledge of each other's lives and encouragement in each other's hearts. Because we are, it says in Ephesians 4, members of one another. Members of one another. And in that relationship, we're called to live out all of this theological truth that's been given for us in the book of Ephesians about who we now are in Christ. That we're no longer strangers and aliens. We're fellow citizens and members of the household of God, brothers and sisters together in Christ. So as we think through the implications of that, foundational to this unity that Jesus bought and paid for with his blood, foundational to that unity is shared lives, shared joys, shared sorrows. Just coming together with one another. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you, he says, are members individually of it. That's why it's not an organization. It's an organism. Living, breathing. And that's the picture. Paul wanted the Ephesian church to know how I am and what I'm doing in order that they would pray for him better. That they could pray for him more effectively. And not just pray for him, but to also just come together with him in a way. And share in his life, share in his joys, share in his sorrows, share in what's going on. And to do that, he sends this brother Tychicus to come and bring that message. Most scholars believe that Tychicus was the one who may have been the scribe. That as Paul... Read the, As Paul spoke this, Tychicus wrote it down. Some believe that as Paul did in many of his epistles, that at the end he took the pen himself and wrote these last few verses. Now, there's no indication that he actually did that. They just say, based on the pattern, because he says in other places, with my own pen, in my own hand, I write this. Regardless, as it comes to the end of what some call a very impersonal letter, Paul gets very personal. He says, I want you to know me, and I want you to know what's going on in my life. And so he sends this brother in Christ who was with Paul. Paul, by the way, remember, tells us in 2 Corinthians that he's been through some mess, okay? Three times I was beaten with rods, stone. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day, he says, I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hungry, thirsty, without food, cold, exposed, and Tychicus was with him. Was with him in many of these things. So he is a beloved brother. I, I have a friend like that, you know. I have, I, I have a guy I grew up with, and man, we've been through some mess together. And we can come back together and not see other for months and just pick up right where we left off. Right? I mean, you may have a friend like that. You may have someone like that. And so Paul calls him a dear brother, a faithful servant in the Lord. In Colossians, which almost sounds like an echo of this very passage, he calls him also a fellow servant in the Lord, diakonos, a a deacon. He calls him someone who has been faithful to serve, someone who has been faithful in the work, someone who has been faithful in the ministry. And we don't know much about this man. And I think that's important. And I think that's key to understand that God has chosen throughout the ages to use really people that are unknown, unnamed, not in the spotlight, to have huge, huge impact on his kingdom and on his church and on his people. And I can look back over the decades and think of many in this very fellowship who haven't been up here haven't been in that light, haven't been using a microphone, and have had eternal impact in the life of this church and in the life of individuals within this church and have parakaleo, come along beside and encouraged our hearts. Right? You can think of people like that. I hope you can. Many times the catalyst for this encouragement that Paul wants in the life of this church is not that vocal leader in the front, but that quiet, faithful servant in the background who's just consistent, compassionate, clear and solid in their understanding of Christ and the word and just come along beside people. Paul desired face to face contact with people, not just sending them a letter. He says in 1 Thessalonians, being affectionately desirous of you. Hear that? Being affectionately desirous of you. I've meditated on that this week. I've thought about it. I've been convicted in my own heart. I just don't feel that way about some of you sometimes. Okay? And and you don't feel that way about me. And even as I ask you before to look around the room and see that this church, the church, is the manifestation of God's wisdom. And one day he's going to hold it up and show it off. I'm not talking about everybody that's drawing a breath in this room being your BFF. But what I am talking about here is a supernatural relationship. Where with humility and grace and sometimes courage, all the time needing the grace of forgiveness and bearing with one another in love, we're willing to share our lives with one another so that you may know how I'm doing and what am I do- what am I do- what I am doing. So you can pray for me and I can pray for you. And we can reflect then a genuineness and an openness 
that is in the gospel. He said, I'm desirous, he said in 1 Thessalonians, desirous, affectionately desirous of you. Not merely to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. That's, that's that picture. So let me give you an application on this point for just a second. That same heart that Paul says in Thessalonians, by the way, he says in Romans. He begins the book of Romans in verse 10. Without ceasing, I mention you in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, Paul said, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. In 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Here's what I've been meditating on this week and thinking about. We have the word of God. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is perfect. And yet Paul says, I want to come to you so that even though you have the epistle, even though you have the word, I can come and supply what is lacking in your faith. What more do we need besides the Word of God? We need flesh and bone on it. We need to hear it spoken from a human voice. We need to hear it coming from a human heart, even as it comes from God's heart. We need that Word lived out and spoken into our lives. That's what it means to make disciples. This week as we celebrated the life of Marjorie Clayton, I mentioned Kay Arthur. I mentioned the Bible study, the, the way that, that Marjorie had studied the Word. K. Arthur says this. I think, it's, I think it's so good. While I observe Scripture alone, I do not interpret it alone. I discover truth for myself, but not by myself. You must have your quiet time. Your personal time with Christ in the Word. You must have in addition to that. Brothers and sisters in Christ. In that Word with you. Helping you and them together understand and interpret it properly. And so Paul said... I want, to, I want to supply what is lacking in your faith in 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is, he is, he, I believe he understood what it was he was writing. But Paul did not expect his pen and that writing to alone go without that flesh and blood. Without that body, that person who comes. I mean, God brought it down from the mountain through Moses, right? His word came to us that way. I'm careful. I can't take that too far. Haddon Robinson said this, though. Paul realized that some ministry simply cannot take place apart from face-to-face contact. Even the reading of an inspired letter will not substitute, Robinson said. A power comes through the preached or spoken word that even the written word cannot replace. So discover God's word by yourself, but never just by yourself. And the reason we emphasize and make so much about speaking the word into each other's lives through the prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit 
is because that's the way disciples are made and that's the way we grow in our faith. And there is, listen, meeting together face to face as the people of God is not optional for the child of God. It is not. Virtual won't cut it. Can't. And I know there's circumstances where some are unable to, but COVID has crippled the spiritual walk of many people. Or at least seems to have. Because there's no substitute. And when we do come together in our worship gatherings and our Sunday school classes and our life groups or our small groups, we don't come together to talk politics. We don't come together to talk sports. We don't come together to talk the weather. We do share our lives with one another. I know it's a balance sometimes. I know it seems like sometimes we take 30 minutes to take prayer requests and five minutes to pray. I've struggled with that all my life. I know that. But I'm just saying that when we come together to share our lives and specifically to read the word together and go to the word together and speak it into each other's lives through prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit, there is no substitute for that. And Paul, even when he couldn't do it himself, sent a faithful brother to do that on his behalf. And I believe that's a role and responsibility that all of us have. Then this final paragraph ends with this. Two verses. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I, I can't help but just see this when, when someone said, well, there's just not much theological meat in these verses. I mean, just think for a second about the term, the title that, that Paul gives to Christ here. The Lord Jesus Christ. You can chew on that from now on. He is the Lord. He is sovereign. King of kings. As, as Jason read from Colossians, he, he, all things are one day going to be resolved and united in Christ. He is king. He is Jesus. He's the son of Mary. He's fully human, yet fully divine. Fully acquainted with our griefs and our sorrows. Yet without sin. And he is the Christ. The promised one. The Messiah. The prophet, priest, and king. That's promised throughout the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ. Oh my word. You can chew on that from now on. And these recurring themes that have been in the book of Ephesus. This peace. Verse 12 in chapter 1. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 verse 14. He himself is our peace. It says in verse 17 there that he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Peace, this reconciliation with God and one another. Love, Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption. Chapter 2, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive together with Christ. Love. Paul prayed that we'd be rooted and grounded in that love and that we would know that love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we're to bear with one another in love and we're to walk with one another in love. And then this idea of faith or faithfulness. Paul says in chapter 1, since I've heard of your faith or your faithfulness, 
Their faithfulness in their walk was something that was recognized. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. So this faith is not only that means by which we receive and appropriate the gift of the gospel, the gift of salvation. It is also faithfulness, living it out, walking it out. And faith is the goal, it says in verse chapter 4, verse 13. Till we attain, till we obtain it says, or, or attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So... Here we see these these peace, our reconciliation with God and one another, love. Why would God even give us the opportunity to know this peace? Because he loved us. So peace and love come together. The peace is, is, is just this amazing picture of reconciliation. And this love is the source of that peace. And then it's also the outflow of it. Right? We love because he first loved us. And then we're called to love the brothers and faith, belief and trust is this picture of faith. Faith believes what is said and faith responds in obedience. So this picture comes to this end, this last sentence. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Grace was the first word, kind of the first theme in the book of Ephesians, and it ends there. And this grace is continually poured out on the genuine disciple's life, in the genuine disciple's life. And this love that he talks about here, it describes as being incorruptible, enduring. And I believe it's talking about, in a very rare sense, because it's not much talked about, our love for Christ. Our love for him. I believe that's what Paul is talking about here. The genuine love of the genuine believer for Jesus. If you're a genuine believer in Christ, I believe this text teaches that your love will never die. Now, it will wane. It'll be better in seasons or at times than at others. But it will never die. And when Paul tells us in the book of Romans in chapter 8 that he is sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present nor things to come nor powers nor death nor any other thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, he is talking about God's love for us. But I believe in direct relationship to that. He is also talking about our love for Christ, my love for Christ, and that what God has started in Christ in me, he will be faithful to bring to an end, right? And that in the genuine believer, our love for Jesus will never die. It is eternal because he is and he is love. And we love because he first loved us. Right. You see that. And what an amazing promise this is. What encouragement, what confidence this gives me. And again, not in myself, but in him who loved me and gave himself for me. So. How do we apply this? Man, I thought about Peter early this morning. I was just sitting out in my study, and the question that came to mind, Gerald, do you really love me? And then I thought about John 21. And here's Peter, and he has blown it like few people ever had blown it. And three times Jesus asked him in John 21, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? 
And Peter's heart was broken before him. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he does, right? He knows my heart this instant as I stand here. He knows your heart right now as you sit there. Jesus, I love you. And he knows whether you do or not. And whether I do or not. He knows that. And he didn't ask Peter for a pledge. He didn't say, Peter, you need to try harder. Peter, this is what you need to do. Or Peter, that, that, that's, that's not what he did. And this one question, do you love me, should constantly drive us to the gospel. It should constantly drive us to Christ. Not asking, what more do I need to do? But the whole picture of the prayer in Ephesians 3, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, means that as we grow in the knowledge of His love for us, we grow in our love for Him. An eternal, unending cycle of growth. So just rest in that. And then let me just ask you this question. Who or what do people around us know that we love? Parents, grandparents, what do your children or grandchildren know that you love? What do they see growing about your love for that thing or person? Do the ones that know us say, I see you growing in your love for Jesus. Can we say that to one another? Oh, I pray that we can. And I pray that when we can't and when we acknowledge, I'm struggling right now. We can be humble enough like Paul to say, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for me. I want to invite you to come to Christ this morning before I finish. This peace, this love, this faith, all three of those are gifts from God because of his grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own. It is a gift of God. And I invite you to come to Christ today. You'll never find love. You'll never find peace. You'll never find grace apart from Him. And I invite you to come to Him today. And church, today, as we wrap up this text, and we'll bring it together next week, just rejoice in Jesus our Savior. And in this amazing grace that God has shown us in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you today for this word, simple as it is, short as it is. Thank you for people like Tychicus. Help us to be men and women like him, who are fleshing out your word and speaking it into each other's lives. May those around us, Lord, look to us and just be thankful that we are faithful ministers of Christ, sharing our lives together. Grow us in our humility in our wisdom. God, as those divine appointments come, I pray that we would indeed be bold and clear, quick to give the reason for the hope that is within us in Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.